0: You know, like when you see some people that own boats and they have like a kitchen on the boat. Yeah. That's like my kitchen. It's a boat kitchen.
1: This band could be your food. Welcome back, campers, to another chapter of This Band Could Be Your Food. I'm your host, your guide, your captain, Nathan Palin, broadcasting to you from Greenpoint, Brooklyn, New York City. We have another great episode of a band that you probably haven't thought about in quite a while. Living Color, New York City's own born-and-bred Living Color. A four-piece conceived by their guitar player Vernon Reed, guitar virtuoso, who actually was recording some material with Alan Camlet, the fella that uh, plays drums in the Police Tribute Band, that was on a couple of months ago with the Police episode. So I actually should have talked to him about this, but that's all right. I brought in... Our old friend, Charlie Schmidt, we haven't talked to him in quite a while. He was there for the first three episodes. We let him have a little time by himself to come up with some bands that he wanted to do. And he recommended doing Living Color. I thought that was an excellent idea. I haven't really thought about Living Color in quite some time. And so I was able to uh, check out the first two records, Vivid and Time's Up. I used to own both of them. Well, I own Time's Up. I got that through Columbia House or BMI, one of those 12 CDs for a penny deals. Vivid I actually got from the library and put my favorite songs onto a cassette and listened to them in my Mercury Tracer. Heading to and from high school back in the days. Actually, you know what? That was 1988. I don't, I wasn't even driving at that point. You know, when Living Color made its huge impact in the MTV video days. God, that was a great video. It felt like I was getting a history lesson when I was watching that. And I probably was. Alright, time's a waste and let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Charlie Schmidt talking about living color. Kapow. the nicest things to say when I think about it. Hey Charlie! Welcome back. Thank you, thank you. Hey, when I say welcome back, I mean uh, thanks for welcoming me back into your apartment.
0: Always welcome here, my friend.
1: Where this band could be your food started. This is true. Yeah. yeah.
0: In this little 500 square
1: foot apartment in Ridgewood, Queens. Mm, the trains are rolling. The coffee is steaming. Mm-hmm. And we are ready to talk about living color. Yeah. Now, this was your idea to talk about living color. It was. It was. Um, and I'm happy that you did because I haven't thought about living color in quite a long time. Right. I was in at during the glory days, obviously, MTV when uh that video hit. Mm-hmm. You know the video. Oh yeah. Yeah, Cult of Personality. Mm-hmm. And it was like nothing else on MTV at that time. It was this was like 1988. Mm-hmm. This is like when hair metal was starting to come to a close with Guns N' Roses. And then uh then Living Color hits. And that riff did <laughs> Still to this day is one of the coolest riffs ever.
0: It it really is. I mean, Vernon Reed, obviously is well, the reason why I picked Living Color is because yeah, I got that tape, right? Oh, yes. And I remember, you know, I think everybody in my household knew about, you know, knew about Vivid and just not only the deep cuts but also the more popular tunes on that on that record sure, and yeah. um you're right there was kind of nothing like it and the reason why i picked living color was because first of all will calhoun is like a personal hero of mine as an artist and a percussionist and what i consider to be a musicologist he's yeah. been all over the world i mean he has like done tribute albums to elvin jones i mean he studied percussion in brazil he's gone to mali i mean he is an educator and graduated from Berkeley as well. Graduated from Berkeley. Yeah. yeah. And actually his first gig out of Berkeley, Harry Belafonte. No kidding. Harry Belafonte was actually the one credited with him. Pushing forward with living color. What? Yeah. There's some stories. Uh, one particular story I'll tell at the gate right now is that he was touring with Harry Belafonte and I guess they had a little window of time off like a few days so uh will calhoun goes and you know obviously at that point he'd cut like a demo with with uh vernon reed and um i don't even think he was necessarily first call on drums i think there was another drummer no i living color started with completely different members other other than vernon reed this has always been like vernon
1: reed's band right um so the guys that are in it like the living color, we know are maybe second and third. I think he might be the third or fourth drummer that that came in. Like I think they had a guy for a while, and then they like went through a couple of guys quickly, mm-hmm. and then Will Calhoun, yeah, took the spot.
0: Yeah, Will takes Will takes the spot. Obviously, as like sort of like uh, you know. I think he comes in uh, because the the second drummer they had was did a couple shows and then just kind of went AWOL. Maybe took another gig. So the story goes, Will Calhoun hops this flight from somewhere up in New England down to New York. He's going to play at CBGVs with Living Color. Mm-hmm. And um, you know we get, this is a clandestine mission because you got days off so you could do your own thing or you can hang with the band. So he goes and buys a plane ticket and he gets on the plane. Mm-hmm. And who's on the flight online, but Harry Belafonte, who's also flying to New York, and so Harry Belafonte sees him and goes, "What are you doing on this flight?" And I, I don't know what Will Calhoun said to him, but he apparently was like, <laughs> "You know, oh, you know, I just I got to go down to New York for something." And and so Harry Belafonte bumps him up from coach to first class, so they fly first class together. And he doesn't ask him what he's doing in New York until, you know, the end of the flight. And so I think you know Will Calhoun finally comes clean. He says, "Look, I'm I'm playing with this band. You know, we cut a we cut a demo, and we're you know we're going to back it up. We're going to play." And Harry Belafonte goes, "You record your shows," and he goes, "Yeah, I, th- I think they're going to record it." You know, Harry Belafonte goes, "Give me a copy of the recording by the by the time it's done." You know, like when you when you the, the gig is over and you come back, let me listen to it. So he's all of like nineteen, and he's like super worried. And at that point, he's convinced he's going to get fired. <laughs> yeah, but this is a credit to Harry Belafonte. and Just what a badass that guy yeah. just was, and he he. Finally, you know, he does the gig. Will Calhoun comes back. He gives him a recording. He listens to the recording. A few days goes by, and he he basically pulls Will aside and he goes like, you know, I heard the recording. You need to be doing this. This is your thing. Wow. And uh, yeah, he really influenced him to to pursue it more. Um, But he said, and this is me totally paraphrasing from an interview with Will Calhoun. Because I don't know Will personally, um, is that he said that Harry Belafonte was like, "This is important that you do this," and this is this is why I picked Living Color is because of the the cultural significance as well as the musical significance. Yes, people listen to Cult of Personality and they boil it down to like a lucky riff. Oh yeah, it's cool. Like, what a neat song, you know? And it speaks on so many different things that are even obviously relevant today. Sure, but when you take a step back and listen to all of Vivid. And you hear the reggae mm-hmm. and you hear the the influence of like Dominican, Puerto Rican music, um Senegalese like Afrobeat. I mean, there everything yeah. Yeah, is yeah, going yeah. on, and yeah. it's not a mistake. And the funk and the funk. yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, that was... those cats can play. God, there's yes. not a loose
1: link in that chain. Every single member brings so much to that band. you know, yeah. you could fill a podcast with the history of every single member. Yep. and because of this, they were able to write together very seamlessly, and do a really good job. Like I know there's a lot of bands that are like, "All right, we're going to write together," and it usually just ends up being, it can be really tricky, you know, mm-hmm. when you have to make compromises, you know, to get everybody's idea in and in, and um, not have a clear focus. But with these guys, mm-hmm. there's there's none of that. There there's there's no fat
0: trim. Right. They're coming in from all different sides of the fence, but musically speaking, it's like every side of the fence. It's like, yeah. you know, they know about everything from, you know, again, like you've got Corey Glover, who's, who's, you know, he's been on Broadway. And I mean, he's a fantastic singer and obviously an amazing lyricist. And, um, you know, Vernon Reed and Will Calhoun together working off of each other. It just smacks of this progressive playing That really kind of, in my opinion, stems from having had a lot of experience in just playing jazz, Yeah, which we could, again, there's a whole nother, you know, podcast episode on just like what influenced Vernon Reed's guitar style. Obviously, I mean, you could throw probably Thelonious Monk in there. Yes. You know, Robert Johnson. I mean, there's like, you know, he does slide technique. He does you know, picking and sweep technique and for all intents and purposes, he's an extremely like I would I would consider say no pun intended, a vivid guitar player. Sure, just, yeah. And and not to mention like these
1: really cool tones as well. Like he's a gearhead. So his like distortion tones are just so dense and thick and juicy. Mm-hmm. Um you know, like the Jazzers typically are not really going down that road. Right. You know, that's Traditionally more of a rock thing. And he embraced that and took it to another level that has influenced everybody, you know? Right. Um, But let's bring it back for now. We've got so much to talk about with that, but we want to get into the food. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was tricky for me because they bring so much to the table. It's like, how do you, how do you really pare that down? But you told me that Will had an idea of if they were a food, what they'd be.
0: Yeah. The hamburger. That's what he says in the interview. And I was like, really? A hamburger? Like, (laughs) okay. Yeah. But I could see it. I mean, it it wouldn't be like your your
1: lower tier cuts of meat. It'd it'd be like higher grade cuts of meat. And uh, yeah, Living Color kind of boils it down to something that's a little bit more mainstream. Like as mainstream as those guys can get. Mm-hmm. Because you know when you're playing jazz and you're playing fusion and and like Afrobeat and stuff, you know these sort of fit in little niches and little pockets, you know. And they were they were somehow able to to bring all of their talents together and make a sound that transcended. You know, got really big. Like they were huge there for a moment. So okay, I'll go. I'll
0: I'll I'll do it. Burger. <laughs> well, we got a problem. We already did the burger. Well, I guess lucky for us, there's. Darn near anything you could put on a burger, right? It's true. It's true. <laughs> so uh,
1: I so we had to look into the history, and um, they all come from, generally speaking, they come from New York, uh, except for Vernon. Vernon was was born in England, mm-hmm. but was raised by his Caribbean family. Mm-hmm. So fortunately for us, we get to tap into the Caribbean flavors, which happen to be some of my very, very favorite flavors. Mm-hmm. So we are going to make a jerk burger. A jerk hamburger, living color, or jerk hamburgers. Here we go. So that's fun, because I've never made a, a homemade jerk sauce, so we'll see how it, we'll try it out.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to try it. Obviously, you know we're here in New York City. Yes, uh, which has been rightfully dubbed the the most ethnically diverse place in the world. True. Um, you know, as we know, obviously, you know, Will Calhoun was 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 born in the Bronx. Yes. Uh, extremely, you know, uh, diverse communities there. Um, Dominican, sure. Puerto Rican, Haitian. African, you know, um, obviously Asian, Japanese. Asian, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, we, we literally have everything here. I yeah. Mean, and, it with- and it continues
1: and it continues to happen. I was funny. I was watching the Anthony Bourdain TV show. Uh, I forget which one. He's got a couple, mm-hmm. but he does one where he goes to Queens. <laughs> and, and it's funny because it's like you're here in Queens, you know, Queens, I'm in Brooklyn. So Queens is just a, right across the bridge mm-hmm. and you never think about it. But, He just found all of these tiny little, like, holes in the wall places serving, you know, the food of the world, Mm -hmm. you know, in top form. Mm -hmm.
0: It's, yeah. So Queens is just a magical place on earth. Like, there's nothing like it. It, Yeah, it very much is. I mean, when I used to go to Queens College at the Aaron Copeland School of Music, uh, just right down Main Street was was what you consider to be the Chinatown. There was also a Koreatown there. But down in that Chinatown, I mean, I ate, but I mean, I'm a kid from the North Shore of Long Island. Yeah. Mostly from an Italian family, although my mom would make very good German cuisine as well. Because my father's, you know, German and Italian. So, um, and then there's like the Long Island Deli, which I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. But, you know, and you're obviously, you're from Wisconsin, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, from, for me going to university and somebody being like, yeah, let's go down and get some like, you know, Chinese food. I'm thinking that we're going to get like, you know, steamed broccoli and chicken or something with that, with that sauce. And afterwards I'm going to get all shaky because it's probably packed full of MSG, but (laughs) no, that wasn't the case.
1: MSG's fine. It got a bad rap. (laughs) I don't even know what it is. Nobody does. What is MSG? (laughs) You know what? Let's take a minute here and discuss this. MSG. Okay. It gets a bad rap. It was first prepared in 1908 by a Japanese biochemist named Kikunai Ekeda. Maybe. That's the best I can do. But he was making it because he was trying to create an Enamami flavored seasoning similar to seaweed, which was the base of many Japanese soups. It's also known as sodium glutamate. It's a sodium salt. So it's a salt. It's a tasty salt. There have been numerous studies to decide if it actually has negative effects on people, and there is no conclusive evidence that it does. It's been used in foods for more than 100 years. They did a study in New Zealand and found, quote, no convincing evidence that MSG is a significant factor in causing systematic reactions resulting in severe illness or mortality. On April 4th, 1968... This doctor, Robert Homan Kwok, wrote a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine coining the term Chinese restaurant syndrome. In his letter, he suggested several possible causes before nominating MSG for his symptoms, his symptoms being like a headache. Now, 30 years later after that, the entire Chinese restaurant syndrome was debunked, but the stigmas about MSG persist. Later on in 2018, Dr. Howard Steele claimed that the letter was actually a prank submitted by him under the pseudonym Homan Kwok. However, there was a Dr. Robert Homan Kwok who worked at the National Biomedical Research Foundation. Both names Steele claimed to have invented. Kwok's children, his colleague at the Research Foundation, and the son of his boss there confirmed that Dr. Robert Homan Kwok, who died in 2014, wrote the letter. So, there's nothing to fear in MSG. You heard it here, so it must be true. Carry on.
0: Now, Will Calhoun talks about the Queen's drummers, which is like, you know, would be like Lenny White. Uh I believe uh want to say maybe Kenwood Donard. There's like all these Queen's drummers that he talks about okay. that he used to, you know, sort of, you know, you just get to know as as, you know, you're you're in New York. You're doing recordings. This is the 80s, right? Yeah. So there's just a ton of work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I even have stories of guys that I used to study with who, you know, their joking story was like, yeah, I was a classical percussionist at Manhattan School of Music. And, you know, later that night, I'm backing up the cure for five dates in upstate New York and down the coast. And then they would just go off, do another leg and pick up another drummer. Sure. Your gig was to just learn the set. So you had these guys like sort of cross-pollinating bands and artists. Yeah. It's hard for us to imagine today. It still happens today. I mean, the horn
1: players in our band, they're frequently like, "Yeah, we got to go play with Bright Eyes tonight." You right, know, and they'll go do a, a, like a couple of dates with them or mm-hmm. um and so yeah, they pick up these gigs. And I, I remember Morgan was was doing shows with the uh, on the the video music awards, whatever the band was that night. They had to come in and like learn be the horn section. Right. You know, cuz New York is just chock full of like very very talented seasoned musicians that can that can do that sort of thing. Just kind of drop in and, and just play, you know, the parts on the record that aren't normally played and yeah, you can't do that at all, you know, all over the world, but certainly in New York. Sure. We got that.
0: Yeah yeah and you know will talks about how the the queen's drummers were all very intellectual they knew all the you know they knew how to play like you know max roach philly joe jones they knew every lick and everything you know mm-hmm. and he said growing up in the bronx was a little bit more like hey let's get together and just like you know play some earth wind and fire but like let's do it note for note and let's make it you know 100 correct <laughs> but he segues that into saying that his his brother was actually a musical prodigy and a drummer. Oh, really? So, Will was a little intimidated by his brother, but uh, later then picked up the drums at the age of 16. Wow. So much later. Wow. But this goes to show you, in a sort of full circle kind of way, whatever you're exposed to early on, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, whatever we want to equate it to, the, the human brain's ability to learn and absorb language or, um, you know, singing, vocalizing, vocal inflection. You know, it's Mm -hmm. my favorite thing watching these interviews with Will Calhoun. I'm like, it's Will Calhoun. He's traveled the world. But if I closed my eyes, I'd know he was from New York. (laughs) He's just got that New York accent. (laughs)
1: Absolutely.
0: But he then talks about later on picking up the, Picking up the drums at sixteen. Well, and-
1: let me, let me let me put a sidebar in that. It's the same thing with Corey Glover, the singer. Mm-hmm. He is he is also the youngest in his family, and he's got an older brother and sister by like ten years margin. Ah, like Corey is the uh, love child. Like the he, he says his his dad says, well, "Well, it's like what happened?" He's like, "Well, the missus woke me up one night," <laughs> <laughs> and then now we got Corey Glover. Um, but his brother and sister were also like going down that path of like trying to get broadway gigs and singing and Mm -hmm. and so he had that exposure i mean Corey was kind of going at it you know interested in in acting one of his early gigs was acting in full metal jacket Mm -hmm. with all those guys and that was like just the the exact same time that living color was just starting to happen Mm -hmm. but you know he's the one that kind of got the breaks and it sounds like for a second his older brother and sister like yeah well Corey gets everything (laughs) <laughs> you know everything he wants. but so they you know they got that in common, you know, but a couple of families that have the brothers and sisters that are giving them the bug and the influence and just the idea in the first place to sort of go after that career.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great insight because in an interview with Corey Glover, he talks about how he had many generations of music just in one household. So he had records and tape cassettes owned by his his older siblings. And you know, I can equate that to growing up in my household. I had three older siblings. Yeah. So, you know, when I think back to learning um, about '80s hair metal or you know, like southern rock or even you know, early rap, sure, there yeah. was always a tape cassette lying around. I mean, the first tape cassette I ever like really picked up was uh, Public Enemy's first record, and then later on NWA's second record. And then from there, it was like, you know, Pantera and Metallica. I mean, it was just like, yeah, if it wasn't that, it was a mixtape that you would find. Oh, what's this mixtape? And then it's like, you know, Oh, nice. later and that's how. Yeah, so it's it's now we have it more today, obviously, with like Spotify and Rhapsody and Pandora, though we don't tend to think of it that way. But there's a lot of stuff that gets dumped into your your earbuds because you listen to one thing, it might suggest another. And I mean, sure. I gotta say it's, you know, I don't think it's very fair to the musicians as far as what they get compensated for, but Oh, for sure. In terms of spreading the music. Yeah. <laughs> it does a great job of spreading <laughs> the music, but yeah.
1: Yeah. That's absolutely true.
0: I was talking about,
1: uh, a lot about Columbia house in one of the podcasts before, I don't know. Did you ever do the Columbia
0: house CD package? I did. Tape B- package. I did BMI. Okay. Uh, 12 CDs for a penny. Yeah. You tape the penny to the postcard. Yes. And I would go down the street because we lived uh, on a street where there were many, you know, obviously many families in the suburbs. And I would go through the mailboxes and I would take out everybody's BMI, (laughs) um, you know, like flyer and I would put fake names down and put similar addresses. And they would always, they never, ever missed a shipment. Yeah. They never said, we have shipped too many you know, too many CDs to this one address. So I had <laughs> hundreds of CDs, anything they had, you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I did the BMI. I think. So this is what, this is probably one of the reasons why you're sore into hair metal. Because
1: I remember when I was going through the thing, it was just like, well, I guess I'll get the Skid Row. Well, I guess I'll get Dr. Feelgood. Well, I guess I'll get, you know, this stuff. Cause it's like, I got to fill up my thing and I'm not really sure what to get. I don't think I'm into Sade yet. So, right. (laughs) You know, at that age. But
0: this is again, like, you know, talking about living color, we're really talking about these amalgamations of styles that these folks, you know, I mean, look, if you want to talk about like the Stones as like a rock and roll band, yeah. I mean, they do it. yeah. But like, you know, you then on the other end of the spectrum, if you want to talk about living colors, like, yeah, let's take these, like, you know, we're not even trying to do this. This is just what happens. Yes. Is there is like the genius of that. Totally. Cult of personality
1: obviously is the centerpiece of living colors career. It's the song that got him the attention on MTV. It got him huge. And it was actually a song that was written by all four members of the band. It's a testament to how a sum can be greater than its parts, you know? The story is that Corey Glover came into rehearsal that day after seeing a homeless man on the street, presumably homeless, but we don't know his story, apparently was just going off, as a random New Yorker will do from time to time, on the corner of a street. And Corey was taken by this, so he started to jot down some lyrics deciding if he were going to play that role, what he would say. He brings those lyrics into rehearsal, and he's got like a musical idea. Pretty soon, Will's putting a beat to this. Pretty soon, Vernon Reed is messing around with some guitar runs and comes up with that super famous riff. Muzz Gillings, their original bass player, comes in, and next thing they know, they've got a brand new song. I guess two days later, they play it at CBGB's, and it just goes over. Now, Cult of Personality is the song that helped the band skyrocket to fame, The Rolling Stones are the direct group that helped Living Color as a unit get signed and get noticed. The story is Mick Jagger became aware of Vernon Reed, guitarist of Living Color, because he was invited to audition as a guitarist for Mick Jagger's second record, Primitive Cool. The main bass player for this record was Doug Wimbish, who actually later on joined Living Color after Muzz Skillings left, But before we get ahead of ourselves, Doug Wimbish was playing bass in Jeff Beck's band. And Mick Jagger more or less wanted to use that band as his backing group, but also wanted to expand and find some new musical inspiration for what he was working on. Now, Doug Wimbish was actually plucked from the New York scene to play in Jeff Beck's band, which was apparently a common thing for British groups to sort of pluck individual musicians out of the New York scene and have them join larger British bands. Obviously, New York fans were not liking this because they would invest their love into a New York band only to have the key player be stripped from the lineup and sent off to a different country. This is the case for Doug Wimbish, who was a monster player in New York. He was playing with the Sugar Hill Gang, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. I mean, all those early hip hop stuff, like that was him playing bass. It's insane. Anyways, he knew what was going on in New York and knew that Vernon Reed was the most talented guitar player out there. So him and Living Color singer Corey Glover come down, audition, and get the gig. Mick was so impressed, he wanted to see the actual Living Color lineup play a show. So he headed down to CBGB's with Jeff Beck in Toe and blew Vernon Reed's mind by going down to that Grammy club. So Vernon Reed did what anybody would do and tried to forget that British blues rock royalty was attending your show and they played a killer set. Afterwards, Mick was so impressed, he told Vernon he would be happy to do whatever he could to help Living Color break out of the New York scene and hit a larger market. Now this is really important for Living Color because they were having a really tough time trying to secure a record deal. They were not fitting into the boxes of what the labels were considering black music at the time. Here we had four black musicians playing, you know, aggressive rock music. That wasn't just rock, I mean, as we said, they were bringing so many musical elements to the table. So Mick went so far as to let the band use one of the empty studio rooms to record some demos. Because of course, when Mick Jagger records an album, he rents out the whole building. Living Color comes down and cuts a couple of demos produced by Mick Jagger. In fact, Mick Jagger even plays harmonica on one of the tunes and sings backup vocals on the other, which were Glamour Boys and Broken Hearts. So the band eventually caught the attention of a number of record labels, but they were still all hesitant to really jump on board as Living Color being a full-time band. They would offer one record with the option to do another one, all this garbage, but Epic Records, which was a branch from the Sony catalog, including Columbia, which Mick Jagger was doing his record for, Epic offered them the real deal contract.
0: Living Color signed, and as they say, the rest was history. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty. You, you had like Bad Brains yeah. and some you know some uh, relative bands that that mix those genres as well as like sure. Living Color. Yeah, Fishbone. Um, yeah, Fishbone another. is another. Yeah, and I mean these are these are really important bands because of the fact that they're coming from skank beats and hardcore riffs and other things from a totally different aspect yeah. and angle. Yeah. 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 Uber, I mean, you know, I think whatever Mick Jagger saw in Living Color and other acts like that, I think is really, really important. I mean, when you listen to Shade by Living Color, I mean that's that's like their take on traditional blues. Now that album came out in two thousand seventeen, I think. Yeah, and it's a good record. That's what I'm saying. It, you know, it's it's they're making music from just a standpoint of it's like free hand and I think a lot of that's been lost because you know now we're starting to tend to think about music in relative terms of like form and you know you know I mean you're you're an original music artist and both of us play in cover bands and event bands and stuff like that and it's like it it's a real rub once or it's it, it rubs you the wrong way rather when somebody's like you know, you play a song for them, and they're like, "Oh, it sounds like yeah. Doctor John, or it sounds like Chris Isaac." And it's just like, sure. that's how we—it's that's how we relate to music." Yes, especially in the Spotify world, because yeah. it's like, "Oh, you like this? Well, you probably like
1: this." Like Spotify is ready to do it for you.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point too. I mean, and it, we, things now are boiled down to. I mean, maybe maybe many genres have been have been crossed and things have been fused and, and they're on their way. But back then, you know, in the eighties, the nineties, it would be really, really easy for a label to just be like, We don't get it right now. Yeah. So, you know, we're gonna we're gonna turn you down, whatever. But it's, I think it's like they did for the go go's. Similar sort of thing. Right. Like a girl punk band. Yeah. What what is this? Yeah. This doesn't fit into
1: any category. And how can (laughs) it hasn't sold before? So why would it sell now?
0: Right. Yeah. And so I think it's it's, you know, just in the overarching conversation of creativity, I think it's important for bands and artists to get wild, you know, Mm right with whatever they have in their toolbox because I think it's important. And that's how you get a band like Living Color, who's like, Yeah, we're gonna write a hardcore song. Yeah. And it's the most wild thing that you've ever heard, you know. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. they they had to find their sound too.
1: I mean, it started out Vernon Reed was putting these instrumental compositions along with some compositions that had lyrics. Mm-hmm. And he was really just kind of trying to find his identity as a musician and for a second said, "You know what? I, I'm just going to go all, all instrumental." Mm-hmm. So he like did a show all instrumental, and then like people were like, "How come you didn't do your songs with the lyrics?" Like mm-hmm. those are my favorite tunes. So then he said, "All right, I'm gonna switch it." <laughs> he was really undecided in the beginning; like he was really just didn't know what the right thing to do is. Like getting band members, he was always, you know, he's such a smart guy, and he and he wants to get it right. You know, he's a bit of a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Like Corey Glover is not the first the first singer, but Corey Glover is the guy that gave him the inspiration to to have. A singer in the band, like initially, Vern thought he was going to be singing. And then he said, "Well, I'm just too nervous, and you know, I should just be playing guitar." So he goes to a a, a party, a birthday party. He doesn't know Corey Glover, and it's it's like mutual friends. Like his, it's his ex girlfriend's birthday party, and like Vern's sisters going to it, and Vern's like been touring a lot. Like you have to come with me. So he's like, "All right, I go." So then they get there, and then they say, "All right, Corey's going to sing Happy Birthday.'" So he sings "Happy Birthday," and then after that. Vern's like, yo, you want to play music sometime? So he, so he calls him up and has the audition with Corey Glover. And, and, and then Corey Glover is like waiting for the phone call mm-hmm. and it he doesn't hear from him. A couple weeks later, he's like, yo, we got a gig and our, our singer can't do it. Do you want to jump in and, and fill in for him? <laughs> so Corey's like, yeah, all right. You know, cause he's at this point, he's kind of like pursuing Broadway. Mm-hmm. You know, he's trying to get those gigs and get acting gigs and he's, he's going that route. So, you know, that's a beautiful thing about Corey Glover is he wears, he wears many hats. You know, Mm -hmm. he's when he's not doing living color, he's to this day, he'll still show up on Broadway stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, after, you know, Corey actually got in and started doing it, that's he, he could improvise. And that's really what Vern liked about him is that he brought a musicality to it and could really think on his feet. Mm -hmm. you know at that point they didn't have too many songs so they could just like vamp on something and kind of create some music in the moment so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's kind of where that whole thing started but i love that like happy birthday's what got him the
0: gig that's really funny (laughs) yeah yeah well he later went on to uh i think he did he play judas and jesus christ superstar on broadway yes he did so he's you know he was very much into that But it's interesting too. It's like because when you listen to Living Color, when you listen to how he vocalizes, he's really you know he's putting characters on. Yeah, he's doing like you know it's like if we brought it back to the Rolling Stones, it's like when you see Mick Jagger, like you know like when he's singing, like he's in character. Yeah, you know Bowie was in character. Totally. This is why we, um, you know, go to see these these bands. It's like you know you kind of want to see. The character. Yeah, he like, makes it he makes like a larger than life presence. Like cult
1: of personality. He's wearing this big giant bodysuit, this <laughs> right. big yellow button. It's like, what is this <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like you've never seen anything like that before. And yeah. like he's still like uber masculine and like yeah, just really stakes his pole in the ground, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Is it burger time? It's yet?
1: almost burger time. I'm starving. Are you hungry?
0: I'm very hungry. And obviously, you know, I, I feel like we we did an okay job. There's so much to cover. There's too much. There's almost everything co- to cover. Let's, are,
1: let's, let's eat a burger and then come back to it.
0: We'll come back to it. Yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> right.
1: We wear the morning, fire candle masquerade, throw them in the bow. Party girl, the one in pictures, set up the common man and watch dance around. Okay. Ready for this? Uh huh. I'm just gonna dive in. Dive in. I'm gonna take a bite too.
0: Wow. Mmm. Yum. Yeah, that's incredible. I love the. Ma- What's in the mayonnaise?
1: The mayonnaise, the mayonnaise is a, um, Sir Kensington mayonnaise, where all I did is I just poured some, some jerk seasoning in there, and then it didn't really taste. Spicy enough for me. So I then put in some, just a touch of habanero chili powder. Just a touch, because it's super spicy. Um, and then some Cajun seasoning. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's it. And uh, these jerk burgers, you start with your, your burger meat, of course. And I made a, a jerk sauce. My first homemade jerk sauce. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn a little bit about what a jerk sauce is. There are three key ingredients to the jerk flavoring. Mm -hmm. They are allspice, which is what we know it as. It's it's actually a pimento, pimento seed. Mm -hmm. So allspice is a ground pimento seed. And you put a ton of it in there. As well as thyme, fresh thyme. This has about 15 sprigs of fresh thyme out in the garden. A heaping tablespoon of allspice. Mm -hmm. And then a scotch bonnet pepper. That's the traditional pepper. Mm. There are these little red guys that look like they're smooshed, mm-hmm. smooshed peppers. Uh, took me a minute to find them, but I found them, and uh, I tasted it beforehand to make sure it was uh, a hot scotch bun and pepper, and oh my goodness, mm. those daddies are really hot. But uh, I just wanted to make sure that I didn't actually get like a sweet pepper, and then we taste this, and it doesn't have any spice. But, mm-hmm. but it turned out pretty good. So I put all these in a in a blender. I used a food processor myself, but the instruction I saw, you can use a blender. Mm -hmm. So after you got that, you put about six to eight cloves of garlic. You put a small white onion. Mm -hmm. You put about six to eight green onions, scallions, if you will. Mm. You put some sweetness in there. So I put a little bit of brown sugar. I also put a little bit of molasses in here as well. Nice. Yeah. And then the rest of your spices are going to be cinnamon, a a pinch of clove. You don't want to go too crazy with clove because clove gets overwhelming pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. A lot of nutmeg. And then a squeeze of lime. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, just to give it a little bit of liquid so that it it can sort of turn into a paste, I put a little bit of water and I put a little bit of olive oil in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I just put it through the food processor for probably about two minutes so that it gets kind of pasty. Uh, this one was more liquidy than I expected it to be, so I think I could have gone with less water. I might have put too much in there. But the flavoring is really good. When I got done, I put more allspice in. I think that's really kind of what gives it its real character and um, depthness. Mm. So. But it's good. I took that. I I I say I'd put maybe a quarter cup in with um, a pound of some nice organic ground beef. I think if we were gonna go with Living Color, we might want to go to the butcher and 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 check out my old recipe of like your the perfect burger mix of ground shuck, short rib, and and brisket. Those three kind of make your, your perfect burger. Mm-hmm.
0: So you just plowed through that. As I always do with your burgers. You're like <laughs> my burger hero. Hey. Since the, the the one we made earlier when we did the Ramones. Yes. And um, yeah, I love. so I love the nutmeg. I love the cinnamon spice as well. Now, um, I have a friend who was making some dishes of uh, the, the shawarma camp. And he was talking of the importance of of nutmeg and some other like clove spice as well. Yeah. Um, it gives it a dimension to the food that's just so savory and and um, it's really just such a well-rounded flavor. I mean, I know we could talk about yeah. food and use the same terms over and over and over again, but yeah, this is a great this is a great burger, and I love the slaw that you made on there too, which is like a little bit of crunch, mm-hmm. which gives it some nice texture there yeah the crunch um,
1: is uh, an important part so the slot I just use red cabbage sliced into thin portions mm-hmm. and then I put carrot it, but it's a sweet organic carrot so it's it's lovely some red wine vinegar a little salt a little sugar mm-hmm. and that's it some white pepper mm-hmm. just mixed it together doesn't need to be too fancy but you know giving it the vinegar gives it a little a little bit of a a little bite, a little pickliness, mm-hmm. which is always nice. You know, I think you could put some mango in here too if you kind of wanted to get really colorful with it. Mm. But I don't think it needs it.
0: No, yeah, it's like it's it's a uh, the meat bears all the flavor uh, index, so you get all the 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 savory and a little bit of sweet with the meat, and then the coleslaw is just like a nice little crunch. Yeah, and then obviously you know the mayonnaise too gives it that sort of creamy texture, which is. I love mayonnaise. It's my favorite food. Sure. Um, now,
1: now, what What we've sort of done by having the burger make a return is it ties the Ramones and Living Color together in that they both started at CBGB's. Interesting. The, the main guy from CBGB's, I forget his name, the man I'm speaking about is Hilly Cristal. He's the guy who opened up CBGBs and was the guy who was booking bands like the Ramones, the Talking Heads, Patti Smith, Television, Blondie, and later on Living Color. Took a shining to Living Color. Had him play at the very famous CBGBs and which stands for Country Bluegrass Blues and Other Music for Uplifting Gourmandizers. Carry on. Mm -hmm. But he took a liking to both of these bands, obviously at different times in their career. Mm -hmm. You know, the Ramones, they were in there in 1976, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then for Living Color, 10 years later, like 86, 87, Mm -hmm. he really took a liking to them and kind of had them play about as much as they want to, kind of became sort of the house band of CBGBs at that time, Mm -hmm. which was sort of the end of the era for CBGBs and... You know, like that club being linked with a band's future success. Mm-hmm. So, so I
0: don't know. Maybe, maybe this is going to turn into a thing. Every band that's ever been a CVGV. I mean, I feel like every band could be a burger because there's just that much you could do with an actual burger. You're not wrong. You know, I think you could do. I mean, you know, like for instance, like we could do like uh, we could do like Bon Jovi. We could do it as like a pizza burger. You know, (laughs) pull, pull tomato sauce on there. A little fresh mozzarella, make a juicy Lucy. Maybe you put the, the mozzarella in the chopped meat, cook the burger on the grill, you know, kind of thing. Maybe serve it on some garlic bread. (laughs) I could be, you know what? Actually, I'm going to make that. That sounds pretty yummy. Garlic bread. I got a friend that makes his own sourdough bread. My friend, Sean makes amazing sourdough bread. Obviously uh, he perfected his game during the pandemic. But before that, he was ramping it up. So he makes me a nice, uh, like low-gluten sourdough, and it makes just the most amazing garlic bread. When you slice it, just a little bit on the thick side. So maybe that's you know maybe I got to have you over for another another burger and another uh, another go around for some yeah uh, another band.
1: Definitely, yeah, yeah. This is I'm really happy with this burger. You know, I've had allspice in my kitchen for a long time, and I don't really know what to do with it. I usually put a pinch in when I'm making like a, like a apple pie. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what else to do with
0: allspice. Mm. I don't really understand it. Well, I think it's used in uh, a lot of different recipes, uh, you know. If, yeah. well, d- depending on, <laughs> obviously, depending on what you're making. I've heard of people putting it in meatballs before, mm. um, as well as other things, like you were saying, like sweet, you know, yeah. I've heard of people putting uh, allspice in in chocolate brownies just really? to give it a little bit of a different, ah. maybe more of like a fall sort of uh, reflective, you know, sure, yeah. uh, flavor. But yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's good. It's, I'm
1: I'm starting to get it now. Yeah. Like when we when I do these episodes, I go and New York is a wonderful place to buy food because you can find just about anything. But you know, if I can't find something, and if it's you know, I've got a, pick up my son at school and, and so in a pinch I'm going to use the stuff that's in my kitchen and that's kind of what I want you all to do you know mm-hmm. like get all the spices you know get the things you need but the funnest part about cooking is just taking three ingredients that are in your refrigerator that you don't know what to do with and just putting them up in Google and just see what recipe comes up yeah. and be like oh I never thought to make that you know and then, then all of a sudden you've got a new, a new thing that you can make you know usually it's great sometimes it's not but you know you can read the stars you know like re- read how many likes it got and and you know if if you can easily see if you're on the right trajectory to making a, a good new dish or not you know that's the fun part of the whole thing i couldn't agree more how
0: long have we been playing together it's got to be over 10 years somewhere around there yeah i reckon and, and i never knew you cooked <laughs> Funny the things you don't know about people yeah you know, you tend because you, you share a stage. You think that that's just everything. It's like, well, no. It's like you know, it's like when you go to people's homes and you see, you know, oh right, they're just like me. They have a a toothbrush on a bed, and you yeah. Know, like, <laughs> but there's all these things, funny things that sometimes you just don't know about people, or it's mentioned and it just goes in one ear and out the other because sure. You know, yeah. You use the information or you lose the information. Yeah, it's like it's,
1: I'm really at like table
0: tennis. Oh, that's great. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, we'll see you next week. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really funny to learn. I I I love to cook and I um I haven't replicated any of the recipes that you've posted. Admittedly, I'm I need to be on social media more. I don't think I've been on my Facebook page for quite a long time. Yeah, it's tricky. But I want to get more involved in social media and obviously you know, pick up on that. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to see where you go with, with these recipes. And But I have one thing I got to say that, that, that I love about what you do here, particularly when you come into my kitchen, is you work very clean. Someone once told me, um, I have a friend who's a personal chef, and she said, you got to work clean. What happens with people when they when they prepare recipes is the kitchen gets messy like a third of the way through. Mm-hmm. And then they just start getting all like, well, yeah, you know, yeah, I'll just finish that. I'll just move this over here, yeah, finish. That. I don't need to chop those so much. I'll just kind of do this. And sometimes the food comes out great, but most of the time, she said, the food will come out like you know, it's like the person who started a painting and then just sort of finished it and didn't finish yeah. strong. It's like
1: I ran out of blue, but I still have some brown.
0: Yeah, it's like <laughs> working clean is like you know you keep your you know you keep your knives if they're dirty you put them in the sink. You mm-hmm. know you, you wipe your stovetop area down frequently and your countertop area. Absolutely, down you do your chopping and your prepping beforehand. Yeah, a you, lot of people when they start cooking is they just they kind of just go on at once. You know, and yes, pulling stuff out of the fridge.
1: I know. mean that that is largely. My kitchen. I mean, I, you, I brought the clean stuff here. I left the dirty stuff at home. Right. I'm sorry, Stefania, <laughs> uh, and she's really not a fan of. And 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 she's inspired me to work more clean because she gets real upset. And I, you know, I work like a guy who's got a dishwasher, you know, working for me that I don't have to worry about it. Because I, you know, like I worked in a kitchen, and then that was indeed the case. And it's like, well, it doesn't matter if I dirty three bowls to make this one sauce you know but now it's like well, let's see if i can do it in one bowl you yeah. know and then when i'm done with the bowl clean up the bowl and then i've got a clean bowl when i'm going to need it and inevitably probably going to need an, another clean bowl in about five minutes so
0: right and there's that, something to that that's the thing about here living in this apartment is my kitchen is much smaller than my the apartment i lived into uh, lived in prior to this nah, nah, nah. uh <laughs> the, the, you know i maybe have about uh and a half feet of countertop space and the yeah. sink is like a half sink so i gotta work really really tight yeah in a way it's like you're perpetually working um you know like when you see some people that own boats and they have like a kitchen on the boat yeah that's like my kitchen it's a boat kitchen
1: nice <laughs> you know but um <laughs> that could be a feature if you try to rent the place out we've got a, we feature a boat kitchen
0: <laughs> so my apartment is from, from from here on out gonna be nautical themed i'm gonna <laughs> like the gig we just did up in Connecticut where yeah. the guy the guy dressed like uh professor Hal unplugged our entire sound system because he just saw he just saw a yellow and orange extension cord and was like huh, and just unplugged I wonder it what what this does
1: <laughs> he plugged in his phone beep
0: so i'm going <laughs> to so i'm going to dress like the professor and just start unplugging stuff from, from here on out just walk around randomly like Con Ed's working. I just unplug stuff. Yeah. I'm dressed like a captain. It's okay. Yeah.
1: So keep that in mind. If something goes off, look where the uh, plug is and you'll,
0: you'll find Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> man, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wonder often. I teach, I teach mostly elementary and middle school students for private lessons and instruction and whatnot. And every now and again, a student will come in with, you know, uh, a Zeppelin tune or really i mean just just even something from like little richard like they'll come in and just be like what is this and i'm (laughs) like oh right that's right because there's you know these decades of music that i mean some of these kids were born in like like 2010 yeah
1: and their parents don't have record collections to go through
0: right (laughs) so they might listen to a little something in the car on the way to soccer practice or something but yeah what I find is is pretty interesting and pretty amazing. Also, is like when kids discover like the '80s era of yeah. music, because um, you know I'll always see a student wearing a Ramon shirt, as we said when we did our Ramones episode, or a Rolling Stone shirt. I think some of that artwork has been licensed by clothing sure. companies. Yeah, you can go buy it at Target if you want. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, you think about a student like discovering like you know like Rat for the first time. <laughs> I heard a kid singing round and round a couple of years ago and I was like, Do you know who that is? Like, oh yeah, my dad listens to they didn't even know the name of the band. I'm like, that's called Rat. You know, I'm like, that's pretty progressive for a 12-year-old, you know. But yeah, they just heard it and they liked it. And they, yeah, there'll be this whole new generation that discovers that, not only that song, but hopefully those other B sides and, and and for sure. And, you know. I have a, I have a five-year-old boy,
1: and we were listening to Living Color in the car and uh, my wife commented that the music sounded a little bit dated mm. so when she walked into the store and we sat in the car we continued to listen to Vivid and I went to turn it off and my son was like no no, no keep playing that <laughs> I was like you like it?" he's like yeah yeah so you know the stuff is good if a, f- if a five-year-old likes it it must be all right
0: yeah yeah exactly well yeah. that's you know, proof is in the is in the musicality and the message. I'm sure, yeah, definitely. So, cool, man. All right, all right. I think we covered Living Color. Yes, done. All right, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me.
1: Of course, it was my pleasure. Learned a lot of stuff. It was a little hard. They're not uh, as you know, like there's not too many books and stuff about them. So, it was fun to really, it was a, an archaeological exploration. Yeah, to yeah. Find, to find out what's going on with that group. So uh, next week, next week, I'm actually going to talk to my buddy, Dan Hinkle, who is the brother of Andy Hinkle, the guy that did the pavement podcast with me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, He is an ex-writer of the Chicago Tribune, and he is a lifelong Guns N' Roses fan. But since we brought up Guns N' Roses in this episode, maybe it's time to figure out what Guns N' Roses is as a food Guns and Roses as a food, as a food, uh, it, it'll be destructive.
0: Yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be really destructive. You might have to consult like the guys from Epic Meal Time, yeah, and like find out how to make like a uh, you know a Big Mac lasagna or something. I mean, <laughs> 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 you might have to get your hand. You might have to get your hands dirty uh, with that one, my friend. Yeah, or uh, you know, just make it some like pump cheese nachos from Seven Eleven. But you know, we can. Can eat them like at the the subway station (laughs) while smoking a cigarette and getting yelled at by your girlfriend. That sounds about right. Or friend. Anybody really. It could be (laughs) random people people on the street. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Random
1: people. There you go. That's right. Because your pants have been down for the past half hour.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah.
1: So sounds about right. So that that'll be the next thing. All right, Charlie. Thanks for chatting with me. You're very welcome, my friend. See you next time. Until next time. Yeah. Until next time, indeed. Thank you, Charlie, for talking with me about Living Color. Thanks for letting me use your boat kitchen to make some burgers. Always a pleasure to chat with Charlie. Okay, so look, yes, next week we're going to do Guns N' Roses. I think I excluded the conversation about Living Color and Guns N' Roses sharing a stage opening up for the Rolling Stones. Back when Guns N' Roses had that song One in a Million come out. Vernon Reed wasn't shy to let the people and the band know that he wasn't a big fan of that tune, obviously. I mean, who was? It wasn't that good of a song. And the lyrics kind of sucked. Kind of made Axel sound like a bigot, you think? Maybe. Yes. Well, anyways, I'm going to talk about that a little bit next week with Dan Hinkle brother of Andy Hinkle, the guy who did the pavement show with me a few weeks ago. Dan Hinkle grew up in my neighborhood. He was like a little kid back in those days, but I remember he would play some drums out in his garage and I would hear him like rocking out to Appetite for Destruction. So it's going to be a good talk. Thank you, listeners. Make sure that you rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. I bet there's other places to review it, too, but they seem to have the market quartered for some reason. So until we find a better way, Apple Podcasts it is. Thank you for tuning in. This band could be your food, TBCBYF. Thanks for tuning in. Tell your friends. Until then, I'm your host, Nathan Palin. Cook on and rock out. We'll see you next time. Ciao, ciao. Ciao.